Um, I've heard that both of your parents were very sporty. Did you and your two sisters all just kind of naturally enjoy sports and want to play them when you were kids? Yeah, so mum was sort of athletics and netball and dad more cricket and footy. And they signed us up really young. I guess in Australia, most little kids do swimming because we're on this island surrounded by water and it's more of a safety thing. So got in the pool maybe at the age of and then ballet and swimming and tennis and basketball and soccer and athletics all joined in. And it was it was fun because my parents didn't put pressure on us. Uh, it was social. It was more about what you'd get at the canteen afterwards and maybe going for a sleepover with one of your sport friends after. And so I think they instilled some really nice values, which has helped me have longevity. And I gave everything a go. And eventually I found race walking, which was one of the events at Little Athletics. And I was pretty good at it from the beginning when I was seven years old. I think because I've got natural endurance and I can go slowly for a long time, although it's not that slowly. And when you're young, it just feels good to finally be good at something. And so I stuck with it for a while. It wasn't without its challenges. I'm sure we'll get into that later, um, but I'm still here. So we're doing something right. <laughs> and what was it about race walking that I guess you just loved and made you want to focus on it? I think... A lot of athletes talk about flow state, which is that really mindful place that you get into sometimes when you're doing something and it can be a particular sport or any hobby. For some people that might be through music or cooking or writing, but you're doing something and it feels like you were just born to do this thing. It feels easy. It feels natural. It feels good. And I felt that when I was, when I was race walking and it just not only did it feel great to be able to get into flow state, but it also felt like an avenue that would take me to meet new friends, to represent Australia, to travel all over the world, to set goals, to pursue something. And that was exciting. So yeah, those reasons. <laughs> and I guess like at school, while the other kids might've been netballers or soccer players or AFL players, or maybe even sprinters, what did they kind of think of you being a competitive walker? Yeah. I mean, I have to laugh at it because it's always been pretty funny. And I mean, Kath and Kim, the old TV show, made it look pretty funny as well. So I think that's how everyone assumes it is. And I totally agree that it looks funny. And through school, you know, I did a little bit of the normal sports that everyone else was doing. So I joined in, but it was fine when people made fun of it. That's okay. What do you think <laughs> kind of like the biggest, I guess, assumption made about race walking? Ooh. Most people think that it must be horrific for your hips and your knees. Even when we're race walking along the beach path and people ride their bikes past us, they give us this look of sympathy or concern. And they're just like, oh my goodness, you're going to have a hip and knee replacement by the time you're 30. Um, so a myth that I'd like to bust is that it's actually less load on your joints than when you're running. Because when you're running, there's a lot of this up and down force going through your legs. Whereas race walking is more of a fluid horizontal translation. And we actually try uh, and yeah, have one foot on the ground at all times and it's much smoother. So I would like everyone to know that it's actually not so bad on your joints. And as long as we do all the good strengthening work in the gym to protect our joints with, with nice strong muscles, then we don't actually get as injured as you think. <laughs>
Um, and just kind of going back to when you were a kid, I think I read that you also learned a couple of musical instruments as well, but you stuck with the piano. Do you still play it now? Yeah, I have found that piano is the one instrument that I can play alone happily, whereas other instruments were more fun in the context of a jazz band or an orchestra. Also, my neighbours were not a fan of the trumpet playing. It was too loud for them. Um, but piano is a great way to just decompress and Again, it's another form of meditation. I think people wrongly assume that meditation has to be sort of perfectly sitting down with incense and candles and all perfect for an hour. But actually you can have moving meditation while you're playing sport. You can be really present and mindful while you're playing an instrument or while I'm cooking, which is another hobby. Um, so that's the main thing I love about it, just the really mindful switch off from training and study and just play some music. Unfortunately, I can't sing. That's the one thing I wish I could do, sing and play piano at the same time. Um, and another thing from when you were a kid, I saw an old Instagram post of yours um, where there was a pic of you as a 10-year-old about to start a race. And in the caption, you were telling your younger self to love the body that she had because it would help her to achieve amazing things. Is that because when you were 10, you were comparing yourself to other girls about how you looked? Definitely. Um, if you remember what that photo looks like, you can see me at the age of 10 on the start line. And I sort of was the first to grow. So I was tall and a bit happier than everyone else. And, you know, genetically in my family, we're quite strong and we've got these big, strong legs. And that was always a big source of sort of body image concern for me and it really lowered my self-esteem and I always compared myself to the other kids at Little Athletics um, but what I see now looking back at that photo on the start line is that I'm the only one really focused like if I look at my eyes in that picture I'm you know looking down at the track I'm ready to go I look determined and fierce and strong and they're all the things that matter to have longevity in sport and to enjoy it um, and I can't believe that at the time, all I worried about was that I was bigger than the others or, or how I looked. And so I wanted to put that out there um, so that people who are younger can hopefully see that all of those other characteristics about determination and strength and health and longevity and how much we love something are so much more important than how we look. And I'm hoping we can really shift the language and the narrative that is used in sport um, to focus more about what we can do and our performances and the amazing work we put into the world rather than how we look. Yeah. Um, and I did also read that um, you started to feel like training was getting a bit harder once you became a teenager. Can you maybe share a bit about that? So I think as we're growing taller and stronger, every weekend I would turn up to a competition and I would be better and better and faster each week and it would feel awesome. And then I found that I hit a bit of a plateau, maybe when I stopped growing. And all of a sudden, those personal best times were much harder to come by. And I was really confused what I was doing wrong and why this was happening. I think also at the time, so I was about 15 or 16, um, you know, we start to get our period and we start growing and becoming more of a woman's body. And sometimes this can make sport harder because throughout the four weeks of the menstrual cycle, we feel completely different sometimes. It means that our core, core temperature is a degree 
higher and training just feel hotter and sweatier and harder and you're confused and you're blaming yourself and when we don't understand the physiological changes that happen throughout a month then we can tend to blame ourselves or feel really unmotivated to go to training or go to competition because we don't quite understand what's going on in our body and more importantly how we can actually work with our physiology to overcome those challenges and still perform really well so I think those were the sorts of frustrations I was having and I wasn't quite receiving the education about female athlete health and things like the menstrual cycle through school and then I don't really think it should be up to our parents or our coaches to teach us that stuff either so it seems like there was a bit of a responsibility gap where parents were hoping that stuff would be covered in PE class maybe the PE and health curriculum wasn't quite up to date um, with the health and things that young women and girls need to be taught to understand their changing bodies um, and that left me feeling quite frustrated in my changing body and lonely and confused and it really led me to give up on my Olympic dream I just thought this is so unfair that the changes that are happening to the boys make them stronger and faster and better at sport and then in general the changes happening to the girls are making us hotter and slower and, and more confused. Um, so I just felt pretty helpless by the time I got to about 17, yeah. And I remember that when I interviewed Ellie Cole, she told me a similar thing about um, taking a break from her sport and she had a pretty great career after she came back. How important is it, do you think, for athletes to know that if they need to take a break for any reasons, that it's okay to do it? I think it's really important. I like you said, um, for me, my break involved really switching off during year 12. So I ensured that I stayed physically active and I still did cross country and athletics through school, but I stopped competing at the state and national level. And I really wasn't sure whether I'd come back or not. And I think what was so important is that my family really supported me to have that break. And they didn't have any pressure or expectation that I'd come back. They just said, this is your decision and you're having this break and you're stepping away for as long as you need. And whether or not you return, that doesn't influence how much we love you. That doesn't influence your value or your worth as a person. You are who you are because of your personality and your love of learning and cooking and piano and family and friends and all that other stuff is so much more important than whether or not you decide to come back to elite sport. We would love it if you did. We love watching you compete and, and pursue these dreams, but no pressure at all. And I think that was the key. Because I can, I can think back to some friends I made through sport who maybe had that step away time, that break, but maybe they felt more pressure and expectation from family members. And because of that heaviness, maybe they were never able to actually feel refreshed and regain that sense of connection to the dream and, and come back fighting. So I was really um, glad that the environment around me was supportive and, and no pressure. And in the end, one year later, when year 12 was finally over and life felt a little less heavy um, and suddenly there were so endless opportunities really when school ended and I could have a really good think about what I wanted life to look like and what kind of career paths or goals I wanted to go after. And what happened was we were actually on a family holiday in Japan at the end of my year 12 year and we were in Tokyo, it was 2016 so four years before the Olympic Games. And we were walking around loving Japan. And my younger sister, who was about your age at the time, said, hey, why don't you 
why don't you try and go to the next Olympic Games? It's going to be back here in Tokyo. I love Tokyo. I'd really like an excuse to come back here as a family. Why don't you do us a favor and become an Olympian? And <laughs> she didn't really know, I guess, the challenges I'd gone through from the age of 15 to 18. And so it was fair enough for her to say this silly idea. But I just said to her, Andy, you're crazy. There's no way. I don't have the self-belief. I don't have the ability. I don't have what it takes to become an Olympian. And I think mum might have been eavesdropping on our conversation because she sort of chimed up, chimed in and said, actually, I, I believe in you. And I think, I think you do have what it takes. I know you've been through a challenging time and we're giving you space to breathe and take a step back and focus on school. I'm still not going to put any pressure on you whatsoever, but I want you to know that I believe in you and that if this is something that you decide to pursue, your family will 100% be here supporting you. And they absolutely have. So I committed to the goal that day in Tokyo. I had four years to make it happen. And literally every day since that promise, I guess, that my mum and my sister made to me, they have been riding their bikes next to me while I train, talking to me, passing me water and gels. They ask me how training's been, even when it's boring or monotonous or there's injuries or disappointment. And they're absolutely the reason that I'm now a two times Commonwealth Games gold medalist and Olympian. And the sad part of it actually is, is that my sister never got to come back to Japan for the for the Olympics because of COVID. But I'll try my best to go to Paris in two years' time and she'll be able to do it. And then you decided to create this program called Play On, which is all about keeping teen girls playing sport. Can you tell me about what inspired you to come up with the idea in the first place? So at the start of 2021, the International Olympic Committee selected 25 people from around the world and there were hundreds of applicants. I again had low self-esteem, didn't even want to put my application in because I didn't think I'd make it. But anyway, with a bit of a nudge from my family once again, I put in the application and was successful. So I'm the Australian IOCN leader for 2021 to 2024. So basically there's 25 of us around the world. We have four years to pick a pressing local issue that we're passionate about and build a sport-based solution. And hopefully it contributes also to the sustainable development goals. So the IOC give us a bit of seed funding and some mentorship to build this and bring it to life. So because of the challenges that I faced as a female athlete, but also the amazing things that sport has given me and given all of the women and girls in my life, I really wanted to address the local issue of the decline in participation of women and girls in sport and recreation. And not only at the elite or the organized sport level, but at the, the community level, I just want women and girls to be physically active because I've seen that it's not only about the physical well-being and the mental well-being benefits that sport provides us, but all of the life skills that sport teaches us, like teamwork and confidence and self-awareness, actually translate to make the lives of women and girls better in general. So we take all of those skills off the sporting field into social circles, into relationships, into the boardroom, into careers. And I think that it can really work towards the fifth sustainable development goal of gender equality. And play on my little solution is addressing four of the biggest barriers to women and girls in sport. And those are understanding more about mental health, female athlete health, 
nutrition and inclusive spaces. So I basically gathered experts in those four areas. We put a program together that is tailored for PE classes and clubs. And the idea is that it's delivered through a series of workshops where you can watch the expert videos, you can have discussion questions and vulnerable conversations, take some cheat sheets away to remember all those key lessons. And they're absolutely all of the lessons I wish I knew at the age of 12 to 18. And I think they would have really helped me prevent and overcome those challenges I faced quicker. And I feel like another issue is that it feels like female athletes are always being judged like how they look almost as much as how they play um and I guess the earlier in the year oh this is an example I guess earlier in the year an AFLW player was taught was trolled online because she didn't look athletic enough and then a few weeks ago an NRLW player was trolled for being too muscular what do you think that we need to do about this inequality this is a huge topic and I saw Trickett as well the Australian Olympic swimmer post a beautiful photo of herself on Instagram, really showing off her muscular physique and saying, you know, this can be feminine as well. And I think we need to really challenge the very narrow definitions of what we've always been sold is masculine or feminine or what women and girls should look like. Um, and I think as we continue to challenge the dialogue and the kinds of words we use to describe women and girls, we can understand that women and girls can be strong and powerful and athletic and that can be feminine just as much as it's feminine to be softer and quieter and um and doing more of the artistic sorts of sports so i think we need to continue to challenge the language that we're using i think we need to think a lot about the uniforms that we put um, female athletes in to take the attention away from their bodies and the focus remains on the beautiful performance that they're putting out there. Um, and so I think if we can keep challenging those two domains, then we can focus on, on function over form. And I think until we give them agency and until we hand the microphone over to the young girls who will actually be wearing the uniforms, then it's impossible for sporting clubs to know what will actually be more inclusive. You know, in my research for Play On, I actually spoke to my youngest sister about what would be a better physical education uniform like for PE classes and she just said there's no one answer and maybe the answer is that girls want options so some girls would like to do PE classes in a loose long sleeve and tracksuit pants because you know they don't want it to be about their body and they want to be comfy my sister said she really loves wearing a hockey skirt she feels awesome in a skirt and she loves that option and she thinks that's a good option and other girls feel really confident and empowered in a little crop top or, or less material. So I think the idea is about having options and about handing the microphone over to the young girls who will actually be wearing the uniforms and asking what, what makes them feel comfy. And I guess we should probably get around to talking about your amazing walking achievements as well. Um, you won your second Commonwealth Games gold medal this year, um, set an amazing record in February, sixth in Tokyo, and a few months ago, you just missed a medal at the World Champs. How do you feel about your last 12 months? It's been wild. Uh, the biggest thing I did in the last 12 months was breaking the national record. So a lot of people listening will know Jane Savile. She held the record before me and she was one of the biggest race walking names in Australia. And why people know her 
unfortunately is that in the Sydney 2000 Olympics, she almost came first on home soil and she received her third red card, which in race walking means qualified just before the finish line. So it was really heartbreaking, but Jane was an absolute icon in Australian race walking and Australian sport and breaking her national record this February was um, something I've been thinking about for years and a really, really exciting moment. In fact, she was so lovely about it that she called me minutes after the race to congratulate me for breaking her record. And it felt like finally sort of the baton had been handed over and I can really start pushing the mark for Australian race walking. Um, so that was the highlight. But I think also coming forth at World Champs was another little teaser of what it might feel like to be on the podium next year. And that's definitely my goal now. We have a World Champs in Budapest next year. And I really, really want to be on that. So hopefully. Hopefully. Um, and the Australian women's athletic, athletics team has had some pretty amazing results over the last 18 months. Kelsey Lee Barber, um, Eleanor Patterson, Nicola Oleschlagers, Madison Di Rosario, Nina Kennedy, plus two girls in the 1500 metre final at the World Championships. That must be a really great feeling around Aussies at the moment when you compete. Absolutely. I couldn't believe at the World Track and Field Championships this year how it was the female athletes who were really leading the charge and all of those names that you just mentioned, they were doing so incredibly well. And my conversations with some of them behind the scenes really showed me that the female athletes now are really feeling a little more in control and they design environments that feel right for them where they can be their best selves and train and compete to the highest level. And I think the male athletes on the team were really inspired. So it's definitely an exciting chapter for women athletes on the Australian athletics team. And I'm sure now Australia will be hosting not only the next Commonwealth Games in Victoria, but the next, or the next, next, next Olympic Games in 2032. Um, I think it's really important to have some great role models for the younger generation coming through. And hopefully by the time we host those Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games, we've got an even stronger and deeper um, athletics team.